You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought and thought and thought better of it. Our question for episode 103 is something like, what's the best way to live? And we'll be discussing Henry David Thoreau's Walden from 1854. You can join the discussion, get a link to the text, chill out, get lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lintonmeyer, talking to you from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Allwan in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, wishing he was in the woods in Middleton, Wisconsin. Oh, but isn't reading this book just as good as being in the woods? No, but it makes me want to be there, that's for sure. Did you feel like his descriptions of nature, that you could, like you were there? Or is it merely a shadow? Are the words merely a shadow of the experience, not the reality? And so it's ultimately a signifier, but that's it. The word signifier never came to my mind when I was reading Walden, Mark. <laughs> I, I find, of course, it's not the same thing, but I find his uh, descriptions, both of people and of the environment, just captivating. Yeah, I agree. I said on the Emerson podcast that I wasn't a fan of Thoreau, but that was a long time ago. And I, I actually listened to it on tape. I had a long drive up to Maine from Florida where I was going to build wooden boats and spend nine months sort of in the middle of nowhere and kind of a farm. And This is a long time ago, not the way you prepped for this episode, just to clarify. <laughs> you didn't prep for the episode by driving from, from Florida to Maine yeah. to build boats? This is in 2002. <laughs> I had a reaction like he was conceited and this is a glorified camping trip, but I didn't have that reaction this time. I'd like Dylan. I was completely captivated by the language and the ideas. Well, probably you didn't read the whole thing last time. I right? know it was an or, abridged. Yeah, it was an abridged thing. Yes. If you want to just read the sort of the philosophy heavy parts of this book. Which would be a mistake. <laughs> maybe right. something like chapters one through six, 11 and the conclusion were the notes that I made. Oh. But even through one through six, it's sort of decreasing returns in terms of the amount of paragraph space that is musing about life lessons as opposed to describing some concrete particular. That that's what most of the book is, is describing the concrete particulars of the seasons and every geographical facet and him dealing with his neighbors and how he built his house, et cetera, et cetera. One thing I would recommend if you've never read Walden before is to start with what is ostensibly the second chapter, about 80 pages in, where I lived and what I lived for. The first chapter, Economy, is for first reading, best read after you've read through some of the rest of the book. Yeah, that's a good point. It's kind of a difficult chapter, and it's a difficult way to, to begin the book. So. Start with where I lived and what I lived for, and go back to Economy. It's well worth reading, but he starts off with a long preamble about what you need to live and some very interesting commentary about food and shelter and work. But the sweet spot starts at where I lived and what I lived for. And I also make a full disclosure here. This book was one of the most important books in my entire life. I reread the copy that I had twice already. And just reading it through and seeing the annotations that I had made just brought back all kinds of memories for me, just having read it the first time. Well, I will unashamedly admit that I, for my first pass, my only full pass on this, I listened to it on the LibriVox recording. A lot of the LibriVox ones, since they're done for free, are pretty poorly read. But this one is actually very good. And I found most of the time, if I put it on 1.5 speed, 
It was just about perfect. Like it didn't, I didn't have to concentrate too hard. If I put it on twice speed, I had to concentrate too hard and I'd get lost too fast and I have to jump back. But particularly for the description heavy parts, which I'll admit I liked the style, but I could kind of take it or leave it after a certain amount of it. But I can see why other people would be more excited about it. It's just as a philosopher, it's not the heart of it. I actually think that the chapter one, like at least 50% or not more of the really beefy philosophical content on what's the best way to live is right in there. Yeah. And I wouldn't completely disagree. I think there's a lot of other stuff sprinkled out. He's also a, a really good writer. Yeah. He's a great, great writer. And also I think this distinction between literature and then, or literary content and philosophical content, I don't think we need to make such a hard and fast distinction. Like with Emerson, you were focused on, say, a kind of metaphysical issue that wasn't really the point of that reading, although it may have been a point of another reading which wasn't on the on the list. To milk this for our own philosophical preoccupations, it's really, there's lots and lots of ideas spread throughout the book. I think by saying ideas, we don't need to equate that necessarily with philosophy, if we mean hardcore, say, metaphysics and epistemology. It's social, what I would call social thought, and it's an essay, first and foremost. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I mean, my reaction to Emerson wasn't even just a problem about the metaphysics not being clear enough, was that even about the social issues, about the ethics involved, it was a little hard to figure out what justification he had for his various claims. And you could maybe make that same criticism of Thoreau. I was just prepared after my bad attitude last time that I will just take Thoreau as I find him and like Thoreau has a lot of opinions about what the best way to live is and whether technology is worth the effort, et cetera, et cetera. And you might just want to ask if I'm going to decide whether I agree with him or not, on what basis is he making these claims? Is it mere opinion? Is it mere yeah. musing? Or is it a deep-seated worldview that really comes out of, he takes this going to Walden as an experiment. Now, we don't have to take it as science or something, but as, as some sort of phenomenology that he's reflecting on, rather than just do what society tells you to do, get a job, blah, blah, blah. He's going to live life on his terms and just see what he can get away with. Sort of what, in terms of simplifying his life, he's living off the land. He's not completely inventing everything from scratch, right? He no. talks about borrowing an ax to get started. He He's certainly using some knowledge that he got from other people of how to plant things, etc. And from actually what I heard from outside, he was going home and his mom was doing his laundry and stuff. Like it wasn't a true, completely isolated thing. It was mostly he wanted to get relatively isolated. He was only like a mile outside of town so he could write. Plus he did have Wi-Fi. So that's another thing. <laughs> But I wanted to, before you mentioned something about him, like Emerson, not being so focused on justification. I think that's another sense in which it's not philosophical in that sense. It's not to say there isn't justification, but a lot of that justification, there are rhetorical things. There's a lot of use of metaphor. He's appealing to your intuition. So a lot of it remains at the level of an appeal to your moral intuitions. And he's instead of building up a complicated system based on some foundation, which might have to be intuitional or whatever, he sort of remains at that level. So I don't think it's entirely divorced from justification, but it's certainly not the kind of philosophical justification we're, we're used to. And I would say that thinking through what is necessary for a person like Thoreau to be going through this experiment and going on it is worth thinking about. And he doesn't particularly reflect on that. 
Mark mentioned that he doesn't go in empty-handed, and one thing that he has is you know some knowledge about farming or whatever. And part of it is, on the one hand, he has the attitude, well, you know, I can get by in some large measure with my wits and not necessarily being an expert about something and figure things out along the way. But you can't deny the fact that he's had a incredible education before he went out on this endeavor. And both in your sort of typical intellectual education, but he's also done a number of activities that were also just very practical in his life. So he was prepared to go out on this endeavor in a way that, you know, if you just took some schmo off the street in Chicago and said, go live on a pond for a year or two years or whatever, they would be utterly unprepared to do it. They would be unprepared to do it in mind, in disposition, and in ability. That was one of the things that stood out to me more than it had in the past, was thinking about the way in which he was prepared to go on this endeavor, and that it was something that you, in the way he did it, that you would have to prepare for. So that the attitude, in fact, that he has towards work and society and living comes after that experience of being involved with it. It it can't come before it. Yeah, that's a good segue into the very beginning in economy, right? Yeah. When I think about that, even though when I was going to Maine, I thought it was kind of a walled nest thing to do. That's why I listened to it on the way up there. But it really wasn't <laughs> because it wasn't as isolated. And even though if it turns out he did his laundry at his mom's or or we, later on in the, I think it's the villages chapter, we learn that he's going into town every other day for the news, which was kind of surprising. So you sort of realize within the, the book and then all the visitors that he's not so isolated. But beyond all that, you know, we I think most of us would think it's kind of a crazy thing to do. And just like, you know, he talks a lot about the reaction of the people at his time, you know, in the mid 19th century, which we might fantasize as being low tech and not so busy and far more laid back than today. Well, it doesn't sound that way when Thoreau describes it. So people think what he's doing is kind of nuts and risky and difficult. And I think a lot of that centers on, well, some of it will center on loneliness. So I was trying to, Dylan, I was trying to get back to your point about the mental preparation, just the sense of being isolated from a community, I think is a big part of it. And so he talks about that in the very beginning about, well, not anxiety about that, anxiety about the necessities of life, all sorts of anxieties that prevent people from not just doing Walden, but doing lots of things in their lives that they might want to, because they're told by people, by their elders, by their neighbors, you have to become a doctor or lawyer, you have to get a good job and do this and do that. And certainly something I heard all my life, it rings very true. And it turns out, of course, as you get older, it's quite false, right? So that's the way the chapter on economy begins with him telling you that the things that your elders and your neighbors have been telling you about what's possible in your life, it's bullshit based on fear. It sounds like the wisdom of your elders, but it's not. I think it's worth pointing out this question of isolation in Walden and just underlining that the adventure that he goes on and the experiment that he goes on is not one meant to be a survivalist, exactly. Right. It's not meant that he's supposed to go out and, in modern parlance, do a Bear grills thing for two years, getting dropped off in the middle of the Yukon and see if he can get it out on the other side. That's not the endeavor of the project, But it is a individual endeavor on his own, where even though he has interactions with other people, he's trying to, as much as possible, make his day-to-day life and his existence depend upon his own work. 
in some significant way. And part of that is in the first chapter accounting for everything that he uses and does and tries to make it as minimal as possible. He scrounges the materials for his shack and he reuses nails and he plants his beans. He's not subsistence farming, but he's actually doing a kind of subsistence economy. He plants his food and then he tries to make some money selling some of those beans as well as eating them. And just overall, the kind of isolation and the sense in which he is apart from everything, it's not a valid criticism to say, oh, he got a little bit of help. His mom did his laundry even, right? <laughs> that doesn't address or somehow negate the endeavor that he's gone on. Right. Which is, we learn in the second chapter is to live deliberatively, which yes, deliberately. the, the yeah. book is evidence that yeah. he was successful at that. So if we're going to figure out how to sensibly apply the lessons of this book to your own life, to a modern endeavor, one theme, of course, that a lot of people have picked up on is just the appreciation of nature and really just experiencing nature in a very strong way. The book descriptions are lush enough that you get enough of a taste for that, that like you were saying, Dylan, it kind of makes you want to be out in it and experiencing it yourself whether because you recall your own experiences like that, or I would think it would even, it's kind of a guidebook on how to see yes. more closely. That's a good point. How to pay attention. Looking at patterns and things. He connects different phenomena that he's looking at together. You know, isn't this uh, the way the ice melts like human nature? So a lot of different, just looking carefully. And then the other, I think really quite separable aspect of it is this bit about freedom. From this perspective, this is entirely the precursor for me for the new work episode that we did about a year ago now. Mm -hmm. Folks should listen to that after they listen to this. One way to, I think, apply exactly Thoreau's insights to the modern world, which is this is early on in the economy. Even those forms of conscious penance are hardly more incredible and astonishing than the scenes which I daily witness. He was talking about crazy things that people would do to torture themselves in other countries and historically. The 12 labors of Hercules were trifling in comparison with those which my neighbors have undertaken. For they were only 12 and had an end. But I could never see that these men slew or captured any monster or finished any labor. And he goes on and on about this. The laboring man has not leisure for a true integrity day by day, cannot afford to sustain the manliest relations to men. People live lives no of be... quiet desperation. Yes. This whole picture of really just what it is to have a job, which is to sell your life, as much of your life as they could get away with buying from you. Because if they bought any more, you'd be too tired to do the job properly. Right. So, yes, you have leisure and stuff outside of that. But even the leisure becomes a reaction, a resting. It becomes all focused around the work. And that's what he sees as very typical, even for people that are not employed by somebody else. They run their own farms, whatever. He thinks that the way that they farm, the excess to which they are, you know, that they have to produce to support their lifestyle is very bad for them. This whole experiment is about, is there an alternative to that? He's got a great example that he pulls out that talks about taking the train, and it's partly a commentary on modernity, but also commentary on work. I forget where the train he would take it from to Concord, to Philadelphia, or something like that. It's not that far. But he said, for me to walk there, it would take me three days. And for someone to buy a train ticket to go there, they would have to work a week. It would cost them a week's wages in order for them to take the train. So I would rather walk. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and given how meticulous he is about noting the prices of everything that he paid for the building materials that for, you know, that he got from selling the small amount of crops that he did produce this, these beans, 
what lifestyle you end up picking would depend on a lot about the success of the calculation within any given environment. Mm -hmm. That is, you might want to challenge him this knee-jerk reaction against any sort of technology at all. If you just showed him, look, by using a computer, say, you could accomplish this much more. And yes, that costs you some extra labor in terms of maintenance the computer, buying the computer, paying for internet, blah, blah, blah. But if you could show him that still you came out ahead and you ended up with more time to think and do philosophy, then maybe he would say, okay, well, for that particular use, maybe uh, you have to get a Mac because it's so easy and you don't have to screw with it. Or you have to get Linux because you would avoid <laughs> having to deal with viruses. Or, you know, he might have some particular technological also, opinions. It, it assumes <laughs> that it doesn't come to dominate your life, right? That it doesn't shrink down into an iPhone and become something that you're constantly checking and his examples of the train rides us, we don't ride the train and those exactly. sorts of things. It's when technology becomes actually burdensome. You know, I think that's the line. And that goes with the simplicity itself, that mm -hmm. he not only thinks that you should sell away less of your life, that you should have less goods around your house because you don't want to have to pay for them and you don't want to have to dust them, he even says. Right, right. The grass doesn't need dusting. Yeah. He thinks yeah. that just having stuff in itself is a burden. Yeah. Yeah. And he's right. Yeah. I learned just coincidentally while reading this that there is a whole minimalism movement that, I mean, I'm sure it's come and gone over the years. And this modern minimalism movement, a lot of it has to do with just not having stuff and viewing stuff as a tax on your life. That is, you have to take care of it. And so to reduce the number of just sheer decisions that you have to make in modern life. And the more stuff you have, the more decisions you have to make and the less you have time to make the decisions you want to make. You just add a viscosity to your life. And I'll tell you, that is my experience. Right now, I'm like, you know, an inch from just living in a 600 square foot apartment <laughs> and yeah. getting rid of my house, getting rid of my yard. There's just so much that I've got to do. Crap. That is just taking care of stuff. It has nothing to do with anything that I actually want to do. And I not only don't want it, I don't want to get more of it. Right. It's really a, it's a burden in which you're sort of just drowning in yourself, in, in the stuff around you. For me, it's an interesting contrast with my kids because I remember being 14 and 15 and just the thrill of stuff and wanting stuff and having stuff and liking to take care of it. And now I have <laughs> my 14 year old kid who's in that stage of life and I'm completely the opposite right now. Yeah. So this connects our, you know, I think it bears repeating Mark's point about the way this book begins is that people hate their jobs and yeah. they think there's no choice and they ought to do something else. But people tell them they can't, but really they can. And then Thoreau goes into talking about some of the different jobs he tried and some of the drawbacks of that before he decided to go into the woods. And then he, in this first chapter on economy, then he goes into clothing and shelter and the things we think of as the necessities of life and, and talks food. about how, yeah, how we, you know, we don't take them in proportion to what's necessary. Yeah. They, they become luxuries. So he has a lot to say about luxury. So we're working these jobs we hate in order to get excess, which Dylan, as you just pointed out, often leads to you know, having to take care of stuff, having to do what we don't want, and other sorts of degeneration, I think, is the word that Thoreau uses. So we were talking about luxuries and clothing and shelter. You know, he has this the nice <laughs> take on right. fashion. And and I think we have to bring in what he doesn't bring in in that context, but 
other people, right? So he doesn't feel good about, just like Emerson, about the corrupting influence of society. And what's wrong with fashion is all about what other people expect of you and what you then internalize from trying to please other people. But he... Yeah, it's a way of enforcing class and getting respect from people wearing the right clothing. Yeah. he, He never goes so far as to talk about the family explicitly. You would think that this would really change the equation if he had to, you know, the same arguments for not having luxuries you could use for not having kids, <laughs> for not getting married. Uh, it just complicates things in ways that seems like he would not be a fan of given what he writes about in here, yeah. right? You can't have complete control over what's in your space if other people share it. Is that a serious problem for him? I guess just throwing that out there. To me, it it risks making this whole thing look like a young man's experiment that he then would never be able to apply in any serious way to the rest of his life because he is in a relationship and has responsibilities that are imply just as much work and effort as being in a job. I go back to the phrase living deliberately that Wes brought up. And I think that the living deliberately doesn't mean that for Thoreau that you cast aside connections and obligations, but that you choose them well and understand what kinds of things you've obligated yourself to. So, for instance, he plants a bean field that's a gigantic bean field that he takes care of for yeah. hours and hours yeah. and hours Six and hours. Six hours every morning, right? Yes. He So he has subjected himself to that, but one of the keys is that he's deliberately done so. Mm -hmm. He dies a young man, like 42 years old or something. And, you know, who knows? Maybe I have no idea what his relationships were like, except from having read that he was dearly close to his family. You're right. He doesn't discuss those kinds of relationships and the family and personal relationships and the kinds of portraits he has of his neighbors and the people he interacts with are from a distance, sort of looking upon them. And often unflattering. So Sometimes they're unflattering, yes. Yeah. There's the one, I forget, the guy that he interacts with who is kind of... The Canadian uh, trap, sort of tra- noble the savage. Yeah. Yes, the noble savage <laughs> who he is in some ways impressed by, in other ways repulsed by. <laughs> right, right. But I haven't read his journals to know if he reflects himself more on family life or that sort of thing. In Walden, he doesn't. That's absolutely true. It's not that he's antisocial. No, he's not that. It's that he doesn't like inauthentic communications. So economic kind of communications where you're basically treating the other person like a vending machine, he would not be down with. He wants to, if he's going to talk with you at all, he wants to get some real human connection out of it. Yes. So he he doesn't stand on ceremony. So if you come and visit him, if he has an extra chair, you can sit in it. And he has two of them. (laughs) And he's happy to share his food with you. But it's, you know, potatoes and beans, right? He's not going to make a fancy dinner from you. And the value he sees in those interactions is in the conversation and the interaction with those people. Yeah, we should say that this is on the first chapter as well, that he's he's no philanthropist like Emerson. No, he's not a philanthropist. I think he's sort of responding to Mark's objection when he begins the philanthropy thing, which ends the chapter saying, it's better not to have to cooperate with people. It's better to be completely independent. And then says, yes, this seems selfish. And then that sort of sets him off on the question of philanthropy. It's not that he objects to anyone doing it. He just objects to it being everyone's job, right? Yeah. And, you know, helping people is a full-time job that requires a certain kind of genius 
But then he has sort of more generic objections to it. To me, his objections reminded me a lot of the way he feels about government in general. If anything, he's has a strong libertarian streak in him. He doesn't see government right. as being respectable in itself, by itself. It's a respectable in terms of the laws that it has. So he's a ardent abolitionist. And similarly with the philanthropy, I felt his reaction was more to being bullied into philanthropy. <laughs> There was comments in Emerson similarly about this. I couldn't help but think that there was something about the time period that there was a lot of social force put on the notion of doing good for your community and philanthropy and that that had high social esteem and he was reacting to being bullied in that way. He also objects to it as being held up as a sort of paragon of virtue to be the philanthropist. Yes. Yes. There are a lot of things in here reminiscent of Nietzsche as well, both in style and substance. And this is one that really shines in that regard because he starts out with the philanthropy thing talking about he would run away from someone trying to be a philanthropist towards him. And yes, he would rather suffer evil in the natural way, right, than evil <laughs> through the meddlings of other people. And then, you know, he says there's praise due to philanthropy, but it's generally overrated and it elevates the kindly aunts and uncles of a society over its spiritual fathers and mothers. So a pen over a Shakespeare or, you know, he uses the metaphor of tea leaves over the fruit and the flower. Here's a good quotation. Goodness must not be a partial and transitory act, but a constant superfluity, which cost him nothing and of which he is unconscious. So that's very Nietzsche. And Nietzsche talks about this overflowing, you know, virtue coming from this sense of being in the black, of having this overflowing energy. And that's where generosity comes from. And then he says, the philanthropist too often surrounds mankind with a remembrance of his own cast off griefs as an atmosphere and calls it sympathy. We should impart our courage and not our despair, our health and ease and not our disease, and take care that this does not spread by contagion. So this is reminiscent of Nietzsche warning us against pity. I thought that was a very interesting and unexpected, and then I was surprised in Emerson as well, but take on this sort of thing. You know, as someone who, on the one hand, you know, is an ardent opponent of slavery, and as we see in the civil disobedience thing, which is that going to be on our official reading? I read it. Well, um, we all, did you look at it too, Dylan? I didn't remind myself of it. We can talk okay. about it. So, but the civil disobedience essay, he's someone who thinks that for the sake of justice, you should be willing to sacrifice everything. So it seems it, it's kind of counterintuitive that he wouldn't be the advocate of philanthropy, you might expect. Yeah. While you are talking about civil disobedience and his libertarianism, I just wanted to read the beginning of that essay, which I found kind of shocking. I didn't remember this quote was from him. I hardly accept the motto, that government is best which governs least, and I should like to see it acted up to more rapidly and systematically. Carried out, it finally amounts to this, which I also believe. The government is best which governs not at all. And when men are prepared for it, that will be the kind of government which they will have. Government is at best but an expedient, but most governments are usually, and all governments are sometimes, inexpedient. The objections which have been brought about a standing army, and there are many in weighty, and deserve to prevail, may also be brought against a standing government. The standing army is only an arm of the government. The government itself, which is the only mode which the people have chosen to execute their will, is equally liable to be abused and perverted before the people can act through it. Right. But he does end that section by saying that he's not calling for no government, but for better government. Yes, in some ideal world, if we lived in the Kantian world of ends, then yeah, we wouldn't need these arrangements, right? We certainly wouldn't need an army, if human beings weren't so constituted as to be aggressive towards each other and all that stuff. And so government is a, is a, I think he sees it as ultimately as a necessary evil. Yeah. 
for people who haven't read it, it's worth pointing out, if we're going to bring up civil disobedience, that he was jailed for not paying a poll tax. I forget, it was like for a week or something like that. And the reason he refused to pay the poll tax was that it would go towards funding a government that supported slavery. And it's also worth pointing out that later on in his life, he wrote ardently in support of John Brown right, in his uprising at Harper's Ferry. In the way that other abolitionists, at least initially, wouldn't. Yes, that's right. His sense of justice and this fire disposition on this political points is really strong. I wrote in the margin of my copy that I wondered what he thought of non-political crime. I mean, just run-of-the-mill everyday crime and, and the role that government may or may not have in that. And you know, one thing that's true in Walden is he you know, has this ambition to live life. But his main things that he's sort of struggling against are sort of basic necessities of life, right? He's not having to and doesn't ever think in Walden at all about protecting himself from anybody. He's no enemies and nobody trying to take things from him. Well, and he thinks because he doesn't have luxuries that he doesn't have anything that anybody would right. want to bother to take. Right. Maybe his analysis would be, well... The fact that you have to protect those things and you have to have an army to protect them is a consequence of you having them in the first place. Well, it's a consequence of inequality, basically. Yeah. I mean, if everyone – he talks a few times about economic inequality in this in the yeah. in Walden and crime is, is simply – I think he even says this – a product of that. So if everyone were yeah. at the same level. Yeah. Do we want to go through the particulars in the first chapter of food, shelter, and clothing – we don't have to go through everything, but I have a few things I wanted to touch on. Sure. Food, shelter, clothing, and fuel. So the point of all these things, right, is that it's not, we're not really living according to necessity. We're living according to luxury. And yes, often with clothing, at least that's a matter of impressing other people. And then with shelter, right, building bigger houses than we need, getting into yeah. debt. Yes. He talks about remaining poor, even though we're surrounded by luxuries. So civilization improves our houses, but not our men. And why would we need a better house if our lives are equally devoted to obtaining gross necessaries and comforts as they are and as we would be in a less developed society, right? So yep. he's thinking about Native Americans. Basically, civilization hasn't helped us stop scrounging for things, basically, on a constant yep. basis. But instead of scrounging for what we need to survive, we're scrounging for stuff that we don't need. And then he talks about luxury coming at the cost of the poverty and degradation of others. And, and then he talks about, you know, the thing that you've, you've touched on, Dylan, the need to take care of that stuff. And that's where he has a great no dust gathers on grass line. Well, and after he's talked about the clothes, right, he says, beware of all enterprises that require new clothes. Right. And not rather a new wearer of clothes. In that same section, he says, all men want not something to do with, but something to do, or rather something to be. So these things are just distractions from, he refers to the simple life as the philosopher's life, that this is, I think he introduces that as, well, this is how the philosophers of old would live, you know, very simply. But then he slips in the latter part of the book into just, this is the philosopher's way of life. Yeah. And I think the whole, they're looking for something to do or to be, really, I think you could insert something meaningful or rewarding. Basically, mm. you know, it goes towards your new work stuff, Mark. It's about doing something you love or that's actually meaningful or rewarding to you as opposed to just a job or some way of attaining luxuries. Which I find that hard to completely reconcile with his working in the bean field. Like I understand because that's something that he took on himself. It's his project. And he only had to do it for two seasons. 
the whole book is presented as one year, but then at the end he says, and I had another year that ran pretty much like that. <laughs> right, right. So in any case, whether he did harvest the beans both years, I'm not, not clear about that. But in any case, it was a short-term project, not a way of a never-ending toil yeah. way of life. But he, he enjoyed the bean field. I mean, at least, you know, that's the way he represents it in the, in the chapter as a way of, as a connectedness to nature. To me, freedom would be having some of these basic necessities taken care of, not having to devote so much of my time to getting them done. And he emphasizes that the calculation is such that he can just do this kind of job for a certain amount of the day, a certain amount of the year. And then he has a lot of time to sit and philosophize and do his writing. But still, cannot the calculation be improved using modern technology in some way? <laughs> this comes back to the whole train versus, you know, paying for a ticket yeah, versus walking exactly. all day, yeah. right? You know, and I know this from experience. If you want to be a writer or a philosopher in the way that Thoreau does, there's a big difference between six hours of working in the field, which, by the way, counts as your one to two hour workout, right? So you don't have to go to the gym. <laughs> so subtract that. That also counts as you're being outdoors. And so subtract that. So there's a big difference between that and being at a computer all day where you've basically drained your mental faculties so that it makes it very hard at the end of the day to be a writer or philosopher. So I think that's one difference. People who come away from Thoreau with an anti-technology sentiment, I don't think acknowledge that the train calculation is a sliding scale, right? It might have been exactly true that it's five days of work to buy a train ticket, three days of work to actually walk there. So why don't you just walk there? But as technology improves flying somewhere, say, right. he's going to have to say, ah, it's not worth the effort. Just like he says, <laughs> being able to telegraph across the ocean is not worth the effort because people don't have anything to say. The news that will be transmitted will right. be about, you know, some trivial... It's the BuzzFeed of his day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just sent through a telegram, yeah. But come now. I mean, the fact that he acknowledges the import of books, which are a technological advance, basically bringing these remote people close to him, surely... Maybe he could not have foreseen, but there are lots of things like this podcast that could come out of technology that he would no doubt affirm quite heavily. So it really just, you would have to take on a case-by-case -case basis, does this particular technology, is it worth the effort or not? And I think that's what you should take away from it, that you should be actually reflecting on that and not just taking whatever is dished out to you by the new thing Apple puts out, by, by the yeah. culture, and not that all technology sucks. Yeah, and we, we know he's going to return to civilization. He's not doing this forever, and he'll tell us why at the end. And so this sort of experiment highlights the benefits of living simply and living alone. But I think you're right. I don't think it's meant to say that the only solution is simply to run away from society altogether. And uh, we have to live within society and we can take advantage of its, you know, he, he even with, when he talks about building his house, because at first he's talking about caves and things. And he says, well, you know, there weren't any caves around Walden Pond. And I wasn't averse to taking advantage of available technologies, basically. It's worth pointing out that he clearly has a disposition such that he likes a certain amount of physical labor. He likes working with his hands. He likes both being outside, but also just he appreciates physical labor, period. And he went to the woods to write, but he spends five months is the time that he spends just getting his place ready. He drags all the boards and stuff out. He builds his house from scratch, not from the logs, but from like scavenged stuff. Right. He basically buys someone else's shack yeah. and <laughs> takes the boards from that. He spent many, 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 many weeks where that's all he did. He did no writing. He was just getting ready to do this experiment. And there was a quote toward the end of the 
the long first chapter that I thought was important. He says, I desire that there may be as many different persons in the world as possible, but I would have each one be very careful to find out and pursue his own way and not his father's or his mother or his neighbor's instead. And that's in the context of this is an experiment I'm doing. I'm trying to test out what I find valuable, but don't imitate me. (laughs) Yep. So I wanted to say one other thing about in this chapter, the talk of luxury in houses. There's a part I like where he, he talks about the lack of foundation to a luxurious life and how we think about adorning ourselves, our houses with beautiful things, but really we must live beautifully before we do that in the same way. And he uses this example of, I think, early settlers who would sort of dig out a, a hole in the ground and put something over it, and that's their house. Or that they would put boards up all around. But basically, it'd be a recess, like a living in a cellar, because they could do it quickly. They didn't have time to build a full house because they were pressing survival was mm-hmm. a concern. So in this case, we shouldn't be concentrating on fancy houses because we have more pressing spiritual needs to meet. You know, if one day we met those, maybe we could think about extravagantly adorning our houses. But until then, we should concentrate on on the way we live. Yeah. And part of the experiment was to see what those necessities really were and try out being as close to the bone as possible. You make me want to read probably the most famous quote from the whole book that's in the next chapter. Shall we? Are we ready? Yeah. I think we could jump around as yeah. the themes call us. Okay. That that what you were saying actually makes me think of the foundationalism, the conclusion to this whole book, which reiterates a number of the same ideas, yep. but in a more poetic, more Nietzschean manner. I think the conclusion is one of the most fun parts to read. Yeah. And he says, uh, it affords me no satisfaction to commerce to spring an arch before I've got a solid foundation. And then he goes on and talks about there's a solid bottom everywhere and gives this example about a guy is about to step in a swamp and asks a boy, you know, does it, have, does it have a hard bottom? And the boy replies it has, but presently the traveler's horse sank up to the girths and he observed to the boy, I thought you said that this bog had a hard bottom. So it has, answered the latter, but you've not got halfway to it yet. So it is with the bogs and quicksands of society, but he is an old boy that knows it. So sort of this, the foundation, again, this living well being virtuous, being centered. And the fewer things we have in the way of that, right? We could have this quicksand that is society and jobs and responsibilities and extra stuff in our living room that we don't need in our larders, etc. And feeling the need to drink coffee instead of water, feeling the need to drink tea, these luxuries, all these things are things that keep us from sitting nicely on our foundation happy. They cause us to choke on our way down there. So I'm going to read a related section right from the beginning of the book, just a few paragraphs into where I lived and what I lived for. Mm -hmm. That's chapter two. Yeah. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms, and if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it, and publish its meanness to the world. But if it were sublime, to know it by experience, and to be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. That's awesome. (laughs) Yep. So have we said enough of what the elements of that 
excursion were. You know, he's recounting not only his experiences, as we've seen in putting the house together, but then also describing really the latter part of the book is when he just sinks in. He stops talking about himself so much and starts talking about the changes in seasons and every particular animal and every particular sound that he hears and all that. That seems like that's the richness that comes out of it. Life does not turn out to be mean. It turns out to be this litany of natural awesomeness. I think we've been covering the swaths and some of the particulars of you know what he means by simplicity and how he was living and why he was doing it. I don't know if you guys want to talk about this, but I thought it worth pointing out was there are these sort of pairs of chapters. So you have this chapter on reading, which is really about education and books and translation and reading for yourself. And then that's followed immediately by sounds, which is all about listening to the world and completely outside of books. And there's a kind of pleasant tension, a kind of, oh, on the other hand, you know, you don't have to read books at all. The way you get close to nature is you just listen to it. And then the second two chapters are solitude, where he's meditating on being alone and what that means. And then it's followed immediately by visitors, by having people come to see him, (laughs) both animals and people. And it seemed to me that there was a deliberate juxtaposition in putting those together. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's uh, make sure we got all that you wanted from chapter two, right? He's talking about his house. There's a quote in there somewhere. Man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to leave alone. Yep. That was kind of yep. neat. Well, of course, there's simplicity, 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 right? That's yeah. that's the second most common quote. I mean, the first section of that second chapter, he's talking about freedom versus possession, right? He's talking yep. about his search to buy a farm and his kind of thankfulness that doesn't end up happening and yep. the freedom of just looking at farms versus owning them. And yep. then that, that's where you get that line, rich in proportion to being able to let alone. And then he talks about only those with a free horizon are happy. So we get the sense that you know freedom is one of these, and freedom from possessing things is one of, really one of the motivating forces for doing what he's doing. He says, as long as possible, live free and uncommitted. It makes but little difference whether you are committed to a farm or the county jail. So then this, the next section, this getting up at dawn and being awake I loved, it was morning brings back the heroic ages, and there's an advertisement for the everlasting vigor of the world, and... We ought to get up because of our hopes and aspirations, not because of a factory bells or an alarm clock, as we might think. And the sense of renewal and then this idea of awakeness where to be awake is to be alive. And then we must learn to awaken and stay awake by infinite expectation of the dawn, which I thought was great. He gets at this idea of not waking up to a bell, right? To waking up because of our expectations for the day, our hopes for the day. And then cultivating in that in ourselves where we stay awake in the higher sense during the day because of this sense of expectation. This talk of the dawn also reminiscent of Nietzsche. And then he says something very Nietzschean, which is not just because we've been talking about the morning as a time for poetry and art, but it's more than that. It's about fashioning ourselves. And so here's another quotation. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. And then to affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. Every man is tasked to make his life, even in its details, worthy of the contemplation of his most elevated and critical hour. So the sense of our own selves as an artistic project. Right. That is in contrast to painting a particular picture, carving a statue, make a few objects beautiful. Right. So instead of that, change everything by your own perception. 
Now, what do you think of it? I mean, he says stuff like moral reform is the effort to throw off sleep. We live our lives in such a way that we're not truly awake. We're not truly paying attention. And so somehow if we were to restructure things and be more alive and more focused, then that would lead to moral reform as well. Well, I don't think he's saying it leads to moral reform. It's just, well, maybe he is. It is one and the same. That that is what virtue, if you're not taking virtue as something that society is thrusting upon you, if you're taking what true virtue would have to be as something about acting excellently according to your telos. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, virtue has something to do with awakeness. So I think we could put it that way. Well, and that awakeness has to do with listening to the world around you and listening to yourself, which are sort of part and parcel of the same thing. Mm -hmm. He later on, I forget the chapter. It just sounds very much like Socrates in the Apology, you know, listening to his own spirit. And I guess that's sort of amounts to partly what's in higher laws. Oh, yeah. Well, he talks a lot about conscience. Well, actually, yeah. that's, I guess that's in the Civil Disobedience essay. But those but. themes ring in here where he believes in the authentic connection of the individual to the world, and that will be the conduit of truth. That if you can be most yourself and be most connected to the world as possible and observe it and pay attention to it, that it's in that way that you will be true things about the world will be made clear to you. Yeah. The way this begins, right? It's people think he's crazy because nature is scary. Nature is harsh. Nature is, if you subject yourself to it, you know, it could kill you, whether it's hunger or the elements. But he says something there. He says, and in, in the economy section, uh, nature is adapted to our weakness. And the way this is written, it's society is a lot scarier than nature. And nature mm-hmm. is quite benign. Society is where many of our problems come from. So yeah, the sense of authenticity by getting back this connection with the natural world. Do you think that if Thoreau had lived in the Sahara Desert or in Alaska, that he would have felt the same way about nature? as living in Concord, New Hampshire. Well, and I was thinking the same thing about just mosquitoes. <laughs> like if, if it had just been a nastier place uh, that he was in. Boston is no, is no cakewalk <laughs> during the winter. It's pretty bad. No, I mean, the, the, the pond freezes over and he gets ice it's out of it. And he talks really about the blue ice. Bad up. You know, when the Mayflower came over, well, first of all, they didn't get off the boat. It was so cold, right? They That's arrived true. in That's winter true. and then half of them died anyway. Yeah. It's harsh. No, that's right. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I saw that as a certain glorification of asceticism. You know, you can survive because of the fortitude maybe that you've built up during the summer and the spring, and certainly the time he had to build his house. If he started in November, it would have been more difficult. But then getting through the very, very cold winter and really just using that time to huddle up and think and come out once or twice a day for a little while and look at the animals and not hopefully not freeze. <laughs> That was part of the ruggedness of of his endeavor. It's true. It was not just all comfortable. Yeah. No, it was. Yeah. But he adapts. Like, even if there were mosquitoes, like there are other pests and things he talks about. And he thinks that seeing something as a pest is just, you know, us imposing our human view on it. And everything is acting according to its wonderful telos. And so the mosquitoes in the same way, if my blood can nourish the mosquitoes, all the better. (laughs) You could see that being a section. Well, and he doesn't bring this up mainly because he wrote this in 1849 or something. But in modern life, we would want to note that he has no plumbing, right? Much less electricity. Right. He has no indoor plumbing. He doesn't have a pump. 
he's living on the side of the lake because he needs water. <laughs> yeah, I was telling someone about this book, and that's the, actually the first thing that they brought up. That was their main objection to living this way. <laughs> yeah. I cannot live without a toilet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No toilet, no running water, no electricity. Of course, electricity wasn't common in 1849 anyway. In the Higher Laws chapter, he does refer in saying, every man is the builder of a temple called his body to the God he worships after a style purely his own, etc. Right? Where all sculptors or painters are material as our own flesh and blood and bones. And in passing says, other societies, they wouldn't be so crazy about talking about excrement or sex or anything like that. They would see it as all part of the natural world and in fact – you know, have religious language to discuss all these little things. And isn't that cool compared to us? But that doesn't make him explain where he goes to the bathroom, <laughs> like feel comfortable to explain more about his own situation. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of the Puritanism in this. And yeah. this is another thing I want to bring up in that higher laws chapter. You know, he talks about sensuality as being a bad thing. He says all yeah. sensuality is one, though it takes many forms and all purity is one. They are but one appetite. Yeah. So he's, He's advocating chastity and... Yeah. Whereas when you think this experiencing nature in a very sensual way is... <laughs> then he has this line, nature is hard to be overcome, but she must be overcome. Which is interesting in light of our talk of this connecting to or living in this harmonious situation with nature. Here he's talking right. about overcoming. Yeah, the, the whole chapter in Higher Laws was sort of dissonant in many respects. He goes on this excursion on vegetarianism. Yeah. Where mm -hmm. the beginning of it sort of makes sense where he has this kind of simplicity argument, which is, you know, I used to eat meat, but you know what the problem with eating meat is? It just makes a big freaking mess when you're cutting up that carcass in your shack. And it's just much simpler to just eat beans and potatoes. <laughs> but then he moves on to a kind of purity argument about our bodies into it. And talks about hunting and meat eating as sort of signs of immaturity in a way right it's for boys it's fine but yes a person should grow out of it and ultimately a society should grow out of it and he predicts that yeah. society will and that makes him kind of an uber civilizationist this is what i mean by the dissonance is that before he was kind of contemptuous of the progress of society and civilization to the point where he wants to pick and choose those things. And on balance, most things in civilization are corrupting of our souls. But here, there's a pathway through civilization to get on the other side to be a more civilized soul that is on the opposite side of where he was before. That's what I mean by the kind of dissonance I felt in this chapter. So the idea that eating everything is a sign of a larval state. So he says the yes. gross feeder is a man yeah. in the larva state. And there are whole nations in that condition, nations without fancy or imagination, whose vast <laughs> abdomens betray them. Thoreau is just one friggin' great line after another, basically. But then he goes into the destiny of mankind being to leave off the eating of animals, you know, for the sake of higher principles. So it's an interesting idea of the societal progression towards being governed by principle. And he says, even if it means bodily weakness, even if we need meat to be strong, so what? principle reigns the principle is, is more important than that well it's just discrepancies like that that make me have doubts about the foundations of the whole thing and what it is to do moral philosophy of a sort by just eh, you know i really get the impression that hunting is bad it's a sentimentalist approach 
that normally I'm very anti-principles because it's very easy to take on a principle and use that to deny fundamental moral intuitions, to say the libertarian principle, uh, governments all suck and can never do anything right. Well, why don't you actually look at particular things that governments do or don't do and stop just generalizing about it and look at the particulars. And he's very good in general about looking at particulars and is anti-principle. But the downside of that is that, you know, some of these thoughts deserve a second thought, right? Maybe if he reflected more on some of the same issues, just like he's reflecting on his evolving take on vegetarianism over time, that he's trying to be modest He's not trying to give you the definitive anything. He's not trying to say, this is the word and you should agree with me on all this stuff. But no number of statements of modesty are enough if then you are going to be quite so contentious as some of these statements about chastity and the quote you just gave about bodily intemperance. You can't be mean with your opinions and also modest with them at the same time. I think Wait, where like- is he trying to be modest? <laughs> In the thing that I read about different people live different ways, I guess he doesn't say in here, ah, but what do I know? I'm just, you know, he doesn't give that standard disclaimer that you would hear many people. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have any. Nowadays, every single internet poster, (laughs) in my humble opinion, he doesn't put (laughs) M-I-H-O. I get the feeling, given how anti-principle he is, how listen to your inner self and don't accept artificial constructions that are pushed upon you with the least bit of self-reflection that would lead to some sort of M-I-H-O about your own opinions. He's opinionated, right? He's not reserved. He's not shy about his opinions and expresses them pretty strongly. And Mark, you're saying that that's inconsistent. I'm just saying it comes, it's a little bullshitty. The whole book is a little bullshitty and that's fine. It's just, that's the style of writing. Well, what do you mean bullshitty? What makes it bullshitty? Yeah. Well, like the opinions about technology that we've talked about. You know, if you're trying to do an analysis of what is the good life, but it's not an analysis at all in terms of considering opposing views and figuring out which one is the best, but just saying it's kind of given if you're just paying attention and you're experiencing things in an intense way, then it just yields up truth and you... You know what virtue is. Like, I don't find that convincing. Well, I mean, he's an essayist. and He's not pretending to be doing moral philosophy, right? In the sense that some, some sure, someone would sure. systematically do that. So I don't find it bullshitty. It's just that it's not a uh, extended analysis in that sense. It would cease to be a beautiful essay if he did that, right? It would be, well, it'd be something like an academic paper. It would be more deliberative. It's just a question of what you consider deliberation. To consist in. And it's unqualifiedly deliberative. It might not be argumentative exactly. Yeah, this is reflection. This is what you do. Yeah. It doesn't incorporate internet research to give you statistics on this or that <laughs> as a support for, you know, or her. But like considering an opposing and position. The, and I, I don't find it bullshitty. It's not, you know, it doesn't have the same instinct towards getting at a an ultimate foundation and finding ultimate justifications for each opinion, right? And systematically grounding all that. But that's fine, because you could do that for yourself, or you could look elsewhere for that. This is meant to be more a reflection and a stimulus to reflection, I think. I don't know. Right. When we did the Schopenhauer episode recently, we talked about, is he a crank? And by that, we're not talking about, is he cranky? 
Is he distempered? But does he have certain strong opinions that other people in that you could basically sort of write him off in certain ways? And I think his views about technology, for instance, Thoreau's views are sufficiently extreme that you would call him a crank. Just the fact that almost nobody now And it's not just a matter of the passage of time and there are new technologies available such that his mind would change. I'm sure he would remain a crank, a Luddite in the same way that he is in this essay in the present day. But the fact that he's so opinionated in certain directions in ways that I would say the majority of deliberative people would not agree with makes him in some ways a crank and makes this in some ways bullshitty to me. That's what I'm talking about. Wait, you're saying that because he disagrees with what people usually say makes him bullshitty? Let's take the technology example because I'm far from a Luddite and I've <laughs> I've indulged my love of technology for a long, long time. But it has tremendously negative consequences that I think people are often unwilling to acknowledge. So I've been the kind of person who's rushed out often and bought the new iPhone Now they have the iWatch, right? Or the Apple Watch where you can be constantly distracted because something is going to be buzzing on your your hand. Every time someone texts you or emails you, you're going to feel it on your wrist. What that represents, it's kind of, on the one hand, I'm enormously attracted to it, (laughs) especially the aesthetics of it. There are lots of things to love about technology, and I think one can be ambivalent. On the other hand, it's really fucking crazy when you think about it. The way people now use technology in this society is sick. The constant distraction, the constant checking cell phones and all this other stuff. It's not a minor thing. You know, it's something we joke about, but it's really significant, I think. So when I look at Thoreau talking about the telegraph, you know, the internet of his day and and the news, you know, people's obsession with the news, right? He has some great line mm-hmm. about someone waking up and the first thing he asks is, what's the news? What's the news? Being obsessed with basically stuff that's going on on the other side of the world. That kind of thing, yeah, I think it's not new. It's interesting to see that it's something that people were struggling with even back then. Oh, and his talk of, I could do without a mailbox. So now it's the obsessive checking of email, but you can envision a time when people were obsessively, well, I guess since mail comes once a day, it's not so bad. But but anyway, <laughs> so I look at his those criticisms and I don't see him necessarily rejecting technology altogether. He's just acknowledging it's damage. And I, I wonder... Well, yeah. and you could see him as being rhetorical and sort of inflammatory on purpose and overstating things for the purpose of getting you to think about whatever your comparable conundrums are. I think that there's a distinction to be made between being cranky and being opinionated. Yeah, And I think that he definitely is opinionated. The distinction I would make on the crankiness end is... He follows up and explains a bit more about what he's saying when he you know, has his most cranky quote. He articulates a bit about it. Now, there are times where it's arguably on the fringes of what would seem like to be the typical opinions of the time or of now. But just that doesn't even make it simply cranky. It just means that lots of people disagree with him. Let me give just another example. So after we had the David Brin episode, one of the commenters in particular cited him saying something like, people are conservative because they value loyalty more and people are liberal because they value, I forget what the other, openness more. I forget what his opposition was. And what this commenter said was, that's the kind of thing that like some bullshitty pundit would say. In other words, how could you even decide whether such a generalization like that is even true or not? What I liked about Thoreau is when he's making specific observations of specific things. 
the way he would talk about two ants fighting or a whole, you know, this kind of stuff was really, really cool. When he would start shooting off generalizations like that generalization I read from the beginning of self-reliance about any government, it's equally liable to be abused and perverted before the people can act through it. Like, how could you even determine whether that is true or not? It's like, it's the kind of thing that is opinion as opposed to fact. And somebody that is really, really opinionated in that kind of way and seemingly would not be responsive to considering opposing points of view, I would consider a crank as somebody that you would be really irritated by if you had to talk to them for a long time, if you had to live by them day after day as your intellectual cohort. First of all, just because something is a generalization, I don't think it's bullshit. And language forces us to make generalizations all the time. And those generalizations can be valuable. Saying that government is liable to be abused, isn't that just true? It's a true generalization. Equally liable to be abused and perverted before the people can act through it. In other words, it more often than not, it cannot accomplish its aims. I don't want to focus on this. Well, just uh, just as often as not. And we have all kinds of historical examples of that. So given the sort of terribleness of human history, that's something where I don't think we need to weigh up the times that government has led to great evil and that times has led to great good and then balance them against each other and say, okay, it's equal. Or is religion bad? Is religion good? Like those are just the kind of arguments that irritate me. Like I don't want to engage in those kind of arguments. And so somebody who starts their opinions their self-reflections and sees it as their goal as a singular philosopher thinking about things to come up with opinions of that sort, I find as a philosopher unsatisfying. And I think it actually drives right at the heart of Thoreau's view of the value of philosophizing on your own, right? That he's not going to, he can throw all these opinions out and nobody's going to challenge him on them. And he's not putting himself in a position that anybody would challenge him on them. He's not having a discussion with somebody. It seems a, a sort of limited environment to do intellectual work. When you write a book, yeah, you're not... I mean, presumably he's had discussions and he talks about having discussions with Yeah, he has visitors. And and he, yeah. he went to Harvard. And I think it would be a mistake if we're talking about Thoreau, the distinction to be made between what we have presented in Walden and we have presented in other cases. I mean, if we wanted to consider his political views, then we should probably take civil disobedience and the Harper's Ferry stuff seriously. But the thing that prompted this was the higher laws chapter. And basically he's coming down on sexuality in terms of chastity and purity. When one could, as a naturalist, with equal justification, and I would say more justification, take your one true love into nature and have a very sensual time enjoying the stars and enjoying each other. Well, but, there, but there was yet, a chapter on according that. According it to cut his, out. it's called just it called cut. fucking chapter one of, three. One of the visitors that came to him was a a lusty damsel in, <laughs> in need of company. I don't, yeah, I don't remember that part. But I think even if you disagree with him about, first of all, there is an argument to be made for some sort of whatever you mean by chastity. But even if you disagree with him, he's not presenting a case for that. He's appealing to whatever part of you might sympathize with that position. I think usually most of us have some sympathies on both sides of those types of issues, right? And so that kind of reverberates to some extent. You can think, yeah, I don't know if that's entirely true, if I agree with that. But it, to me, it doesn't generate this discontent like I want him to philosophically justify his position on chastity, because that's not really the point of this. But Dylan... I was going to acknowledge that I found most of the chapter, Higher Laws, 
somewhat dissonant with the rest of the book. You already referred to this quote, Wes, and it comes right after this paragraph on sensuality. And he says, From exertion come wisdom and purity, from sloth, ignorance, and sensuality. In the student, sensuality is a sluggish habit of mind. An unclean person is universally a slothful one, one who sits by a stove, whom the sun shines on prostrate, who reposes without being fatigued. If you would void uncleanliness and all the sins, work earnestly through it by cleaning a stable. Nature is hard to be overcome, but she must be overcome. What avails it that you are Christian if you are not purer than the heathen, if you deny yourself no more, if you are not more religious? I know of many systems of religion esteemed heathenish, whose precepts fill the reader with shame and provoke him to new endeavors, though it be to the performance of rites merely. So, this nature is hard to overcome, but she must be overcome in this. When I read this chapter, except for the sense of self-reliance that permeates the chapter, I find myself wanting to talk to Thoreau about what he's talking about, because it seems dissonant to me with the way I hear him speaking both about nature and about the self, frankly, in other parts of the book. I think ultimately he's thinking about discipline and perhaps even what Nietzsche calls self-overcoming, right? So yeah, it's interesting to me that, that there's this dissonance. It's not just we go live in nature and it's all warm and fuzzy and everything's going to be great. The sense of nature needing to be overcome, and in this case specifically, our own nature. Our own, our own human nature, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is an interesting one. So how does that all fit together? I mean, we could have a more general discussion even about just appeals to nature when it comes to ethics, you know, that we've talked about the telos in a number of times, but it's always sort of an open question. Most of the uses historically that use Aristotelian or Thomas Aquinas sort of language of the telos to justify moral claims are terrible. You know, that is unnatural. Don't do that. And then, you know, people could respond if you're talking about, say, homosexuality or something. You could say, oh, well, you know, animals are homosexual, too. You could go through this whole thing. Is it natural or is it not? Rather than get trapped in that, I would just say that there's something very suspicious about appealing to nature as a ground of ethics at all. It just seems a little strange. Well, you have to do that, though, as a virtue ethicist. You have to appeal to the being's nature. I thought you had some sympathies or... Virtue ethics. But I, I think, you know, when people say that's unnatural, often they're just talking about their own visceral sense of disgust, for instance, to homosexuality. Yes. So it's bullshit. Whether you're disgusted by something is not a gauge of whether or not something's natural or right or. They're just wrong about what's natural. Right. So that would be a kind of, and I'm not accusing Thoreau of this exactly, but a kind of way that a philosophy that is centered on sitting around and enjoying the natural world could be bullshitty, is importing one's prejudices and interpreting the natural world as you are looking at it as reaffirming those things. And maybe that's what's going on in this higher laws chapter. It just happens that a lot of nature affirms my Puritan sentiments. But that definition of bullshit as being unreflective argument presenting one's own unconsidered opinion seems to be possible in any philosophy from any point of view at all. It certainly would be possible from the standpoint of arguing about nature, but I don't care if it's an analytical argument or it's an argument from science or an argument from religion. They all fall in this way to the extent that they are making unreflective claims that are based upon their unconsidered opinions. If that's bullshit, then that's just piled high and deep everywhere. 
Well, and you could have a very systematic framework to your philosophy and yet not be addressing the fundamental bullshit of, of it. You know, people giving scientific arguments for racism and sure, crap like exactly. that. This is a personal essay. It's not the point of this to provide those justifications. That doesn't mean that those justifications don't exist or that he hasn't even done them in his spare time. Maybe he's a Rawls secretly. Maybe he's a closet Rawls <laughs> with tomes and tomes of unreadable. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that, but brilliant, be, but hard, difficult to read. Thinking through of every detail, but he might also just be a great essayist who wants to talk about these things at a high level in a beautiful and possibly at some points persuasive way. So it's it just has a different function, I think. And that's holding this up to the standard of philosophy. Yeah, it's going to fail because it's the wrong standard. So I think it's in chapter two where he's really getting into the experiencing nature, a way of introducing that whole thing. What he's talking about really is that a lot of what we are concerned with on a day-to-day basis are social impositions, that we're concerned with our reputation, that we're concerned with what debts we might have, that we're concerned when we see a person with the person's social station and what they're wearing rather than the sheer physical facts of their presence and their breath and stuff like that, that part of this getting back to nature is to try to experience something more real that there's something bullshitty, right, about all these social impositions. And so that's one of the ways in which this is getting at truth. Including, yeah, and this goes to Nietzsche and Freud again, where there's a call for a return to our instinctual lives, our emotional lives. There's a call to some sort of connection to that or awareness of that. And that's where the connection to nature, I think, helps. It's the connection to the natural world has something to do with, and I think Nietzsche thought this as well, our connection to our own natures and especially to our instinctual natures. So that's a kind of truth or, you know, quote unquote reality that I think one can turn to. Do you see anything potentially troublesome about this? This is another kind of thing that I think works well rhetorically, but then if you continue to think about it, characterizing the social impositions as unreal in a way that the material immediacy is real doesn't seem the best way to capture it. In fact, what I just said as material immediacy versus social imposition, that's all you need. Adding real to it doesn't really help that much. It's a balm to make you not worry about it as much. But if you owe a certain amount of money and if you don't pay it, eventually they're going to come and throw you in jail. That's pretty goddamn real. Even though money is a social fiction in that sense. You don't think the word real, even for, right, for Hegel, Sentence certainty, right? That's sort of the paradigmatic case for reality, right? At least at the level of Mm -hmm. naive realism. But again, I think the more important part of this is instinctual, which is a matter of talking about one's drives and one's impulses and awareness of that. And that is what society compromises. That's not Thoreau's concern. I think it is to some extent his concern. Well, but when you're observing the real, if you go about in your daily life observing the real and not worrying about the imaginary... In his sense, you're not observing your own instinct or something. I mean, in fact, a proto-Freudian take on psychology, that sounds fictitious according to the way that he's talking about these kind of things. Talking about your own instincts at all, unless you're talking about something really concrete. The fact that I am hungry, not that I am libidinous or something (laughs) He starts off the book saying, stop doing what other people want you to do and do what you want Mm -hmm. to do. Do what you love. That's not 
coming out and talking about instinct directly, but there are obvious connections between this and say Nietzsche and Nietzsche's focus on instinctual life. This call back to naturalness and to being true to one's nature and to living a simpler life. I don't think you can get away from the instinctual component of that, especially when the whole theme of this is figuring out what you want and doing what you want rather than simply conforming to what others want or the Hegelian recognition component of things. So sense certainty and instinct are related. And the movement away from that, you know, in both Hegel and in other thinkers is related as well. So when you move away from the instinctual and the, the sensuous, you're moving towards a reality that's defined by the gaze of others, by the recognition of other human beings and the way that changes you. Remember the Lacanian imaginary. You know, I'm making an indirect connection here, but I think it's an appropriate one. I mean, you talk about birds and animals. What are they doing? They're living according to instinct. Sure. But if you say, as humanity, we should embrace our instincts, then it would be more natural to have a will to power sort of picture and to see elements of nature as your enemy, because what you really want to do is very much against, you know, those damn skunks should be shot or something because they're getting in your way. Whereas he takes a more open, like, I should transcend my own desires in certain ways to have a higher perspective from the point of the whole ecosystem. And I should see that even something that an ordinary farmer would consider those things pests yeah. and consider these things weeds, I should have a higher view. I should obey a higher law than because that. Because ultimately the solution is sublimation. We can't entirely get away from society. The question is how we channel those instincts. So it's no surprise that the answer for Nietzsche and for Freud and I think for Thoreau has something to do with either self-overcoming or poetry or the arts, those are the ways in which human beings can be successfully instinctual. But you're not going back to being Nietzsche's blonde beast and just killing you ever you want or acting on your impulses in that way. It's about the way in which we channel impulses. So the focus on art is not an accident. You know, the return to the natural and yet somehow we end up with art and chastity, I don't think is a brute dissonance, you know, that we can reconcile that. Yep. I think you're giving an analysis of Thoreau rather than giving an analysis from Thoreau in talking about sublimation. And that's fine. They're genealogically connected. Thoreau and Emerson leading into Nietzsche, who it very strongly influenced Freud. I guess I just don't see in Thoreau and his solution involving getting up in the morning, being aware, being awake, being a poet. If you could explain sublimation to him, he would not agree with you. Would he agree or not? Who knows if it was rigorously explained to him, but that's not the point because he's the predecessor. He's comes earlier in the tree. Right. But the point of sublimation is, if I understand it right, that you've got these impulses that are at least to some degree destructive, they're distracting, that following nature, following your instinct would cause chaos. And so, yes, you reroute that in some way so that you're doing art, so that you're self-overcoming, as you say, whereas I don't see that in Thoreau at all. He seems to have a much more peace with himself as a natural being and maybe just glosses over. I'm not sure. I, I want to hear more say, from Dylan, who is very attached to this text, about what maybe you see in Thoreau as the role of conflict, that I see him as saying, nature gives you a spiritual guide. Even though he's not otherworldly in the way that Emerson was, he thinks that 
basically it exposes something like the Christian beauty, what the sages of all time have discovered, this underlying truth and brightness, and that it's right there in nature. It's not a matter that we have these instincts that we have to push down and instead concentrate on this artistic thing. And we're using this philosophy and beauty and truth as a tool to overcome. He actually thinks the truth is something more like Christianity, is something more spiritual. And it's not a matter of sublimating to come up with that. You're trying to give an analysis of what it meant to overcome one's own nature and to overcome nature. So there is that element in Thoreau. But yeah, what do you think, Dylan? I do find, as I said earlier, this tension between his self-righteousness, and you see that in civil disobedience, as well as in the section on higher laws, and even in his tone at times about what his endeavor is and his insistence on both simplicity and minimal necessities of living. But I find it less cranky than decisive and self-moved. I find it overall more admirable than anything else. But what do you think specifically about Wes's theory that the solution to being natural involves sublimation? I'm not saying Thoreau is saying that. I'm saying there are little implications along those lines when you actually read the text and want to interpret it and want to make connections to other texts. I completely agree with you, Wes, that you could analyze what he does in saying, you know, reflect on the morning in Freudian terms. I have no problem seeing a line of influence. But what I want to understand is what, in his view, and and I don't think we've solved that. I mean, Dylan just says, well, there's a tension there between how he ultimately comes down on ethics in chapter 11, higher laws, to the extent that he is clear about ethics at all. You don't have to think about Freud at all. But if you really want to think about this, you do have to think about nature, which is given to its instincts largely, versus society in which those instincts are thwarted. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that you see that explicitly in the juxtaposition of those early chapters that I pointed to. I mean, one way to read the section on reading is about the importance of essentially the products of society, of these books. And the chapter on sounds is a meditation in thinking about observing and listening to the natural world around him. And the next chapter is on being alone and being you know, by yourself. And then also having visitors, being part of society, being embedded in the social world and the natural world. And so I think in the book, Thoreau is going back and forth between those things. And I think that the essay in some ways is his opinion about the result of his experiment and how to cut the path through that tension. And the use of the term sublimation describe how one as an individual being who is both part of the natural world, but also part of society and the way in which we see truth in the world, but we make truth for ourselves. And that the response to that is a making of things for oneself while at the same time acknowledging and paying attention to the world around you. I don't know if we call that sublimation or whatever, but that theme is just, to me, rampant through this whole book of being a person in the world and making your way through it. And Thoreau comes down in the essay, cutting a path that emphasizes relying on yourself and listening to the world. And yes, society comes in at times, but it his cut through it is 
to really see the natural world as opening up in himself and himself opening up in the natural world. So, for instance, when he's talking about shelters and building his own shelter, he makes a remark about, wouldn't everyone be a poet if they had to build their own house? He's thinking of birds making their own nest, basically being their own house builders, and their poetic ability is singing. And this is a point where he's trying to say there are more reasons to build a house than necessity. So it's the idea of work and what work means to us. Mm -hmm. It should be more than simply meeting our necessities. It's about, again, I think, doing what we love. One of the concerns I had with both this book and with Emerson, the glorification of innocence and to what extent that is available to us. So he said in the self-reliance essay by Emerson, he had this section early on about look at how young boys, how readily they give opinions, pretty much how they don't second guess themselves. And so we get a lot of that part of the secret of reacting only to what is true and not being distracted by social bullshit is to have a more innocent appreciation of things, right? Rub away your preconceptions, just react to them. And I don't know that he uses the word innocent, so I shouldn't be tarring him with that word. But that word always kind of bugs me because there's something very different between the way actual little kids or the way actual animals or whatever are dealing with things, which often involves a lot of, it's not peaceful understanding. Yeah, but innocent doesn't equal peaceful, right? A lion can innocently tear apart a gazelle. And- right. But what we use the imagery of innocence for us as adults, as philosophical adults trying to experience the world in a more authentic way is actually not a return to innocence. It's something quite different from that and more like, in some ways, very unnatural, right? Being a Taoist sage is very dissimilar to anything that a young creature or animal does. Even though, yes, I see the comparison and how rhetorically useful it is to say, oh, just, you know, sit back and have a natural experience of nature. We're really not doing that. We're doing something very sophisticated. Well, I, but I would go back to one of the comments I made at the beginning. So first of all, I would underline your self-wondering that Emerson brings up innocence, but I don't remember Thoreau putting it in those terms. And I'm not sure that the call towards nature is the same thing as innocence, even in Thoreau's case. It's just really, if you're using the animals as models for yourself, which I don't know if he's doing, the animals aren't worried about all this crap. Why don't you be more like the animals and obey your instincts and be natural? But that's not the same thing as innocence, though. Well, he does say something like, every morning was a cheerful invitation to make my life of equal simplicity, and may I say, innocence with nature herself. So it doesn't go unmentioned. Okay. And then the indescribable innocence and beneficence of nature. Somebody's doing a search on the word. Damn you and that (laughs) fucking internet. (laughs) I have a paper book in front of me. Stop corrupting yourself, Alwyn. (laughs) (laughs) This experiment that Thoreau goes on is born out of having had an education, both in society and in a traditional mode of going to college. So, the kind of reflection that he does in the way of formulating his experience with nature is one that isn't natural. In fact, the example that would be sort of more natural and significantly less reflective is the Canadian that he talks about, who he has a hard time understanding while he admires in certain ways. Right. He's wondering if this guy is an idiot or something. Yeah, and, and, or, and, and the word I think you would, would apply is that he yep. is the most animal-like human being he's met. 
in that he acts so unreflectively compared to what Thoreau thinks about it. So. so he says, in him, the animal man chiefly was developed. He definitely, on the one hand, finds him admirable, and the other hand, finds him, in his lack of reflection, kind of contemptible. And maybe that points to the way in which Thoreau has this deep love of nature on the one hand, but then is also capable of talking about overcoming it. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, the guy can't write down his own thoughts, but on the other hand, because of that, he's an original thinker, mm-hmm. right? And then he tells the anecdote of Socrates saying that man is a featherless biped. Yeah. And him saying in response, well, but the chicken's knees go the wrong way. Yes. <laughs> for that. Yes. Which is an, supposed to be an example of originality. But the way he ends up that section is he says he suggested that there might be men of genius in the lowest grades of life, however permanently humble and illiterate, who take their own view always or do not pretend to see at all, who are as bottomless even as Walden Pond was thought to be, though they may be dark and muddy. So I thought he had an overall positive view of the guy. But he's not a paragon. He's not, um, I don't think, this doesn't mean that Thoreau is advocating illiteracy or having been hit on the head at some point. <laughs> I think he definitely finds him admirable, but also a kind of question mark because yeah. of his robust way of living and his decided self-reliance, but his lack of education and articulateness and self-reflection. Yeah. I mean, this is just another example of where the solution isn't just the reactive, oh, I'm going to be an animal. I'm going to live by my instincts. Yes. That's not what Thoreau is doing here. Yeah. Yeah, I think I might have seen that at the time that I read that section as that he was in some ways testing out this kind of fantasy notion of the innocent as being the admirable. But then he actually runs into an innocent and he decides, well, it's sort of admirable, but that's not ultimately what I'm looking for out of people. And so if that was his view, then he would need to revise it. And, you know, it seemed pretty clear to me that what he wanted out of people, instead of going to the market and having to talk about the news. He wanted something substantial out of it. He wanted to have like little philosophical conversations with everybody he met. So he wanted people to be educated and well-read and, you know, that's what would make them not boring for him, make them worth his time. Very much the opposite of the unlearned, even though he might share some of the same criticisms of scholars that we saw in the American scholar, the Emerson essay. He he echoes some things like that as well. In his preoccupation with principle and freedom and, you know, his reaction in civil disobedience point to someone who's decidedly non-animal-like, right? He is, in those reactions, decidedly understands society and has a firm reaction regarding it and understanding of what society ought to be doing. And just the fact that he has such a strong sense of justice means that he's been thinking through that. His sense of justice is a more sophisticated notion of freedom than just running off to be a hermit or something. Yeah, what's more animal and natural than to be like the herd, than to really behave like the mass of humanity already behave when placed in this unnatural, according to him, social environment? Yeah, one has to be more than human, really, to resist the urge to conform. To me, when I read Walden and I hear him talking about simplicity and trying to cut close to the bone and suck the marrow out of life. He is looking to see and understand himself most completely in his own action and what he's capable of doing and can do. It doesn't require that he be sent out into the wilderness with a bowie knife and a match 
it's an endeavor that can go on over a couple of years and it is a reflective endeavor. And it's about him understanding his relationship with himself and with the world at large. And by sort of stripping away as much of the accoutrements of both of those things, he feels like he can understand it better. And that's the result of the book. You know, I think this gets us to, I mean, ultimately he goes back, right? He leaves Walden Pond. He doesn't stay there forever. So it's not a Mm -hmm. permanent solution to anything, but it's a necessary part of life. So he says something, for instance, in the spring chapter, our village life would stagnate if it were not for the unexplored forests and meadows which surround it. We need the tonic of wildness. Again, there's a suggestion where the solution is some sort of compromise between the raw natural world and then the and mm-hmm. then the social. It's not like we simply give up the social, and he certainly doesn't. But there's got to be some sort of way to incorporate that tonic of wildness into our everyday life. Now, it might be a fitting near conclusion here to talk about what he says himself about his own style of writing, what he's doing, right? Both in the reading chapter, he talks about only great poets could read great poets, like, you know, very much echoing the kind of thing that Emerson was talking about in reading, that it, reading is a creative act. And so to read somebody that's being really profound, you have to be really profound yourself to really get what's going on. That's just talking about books in general and the classics that he so enjoys. When we get to the end of the book, he's talking about himself. And he said, this is right right after he has said why he left the woods. I left the woods for as good a reason that I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. But then just you know, a couple paragraphs later, he's talking about the style of what he's just written. He says, uh, it is a ridiculous demand which England and America make that you shall speak so that they can understand you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Soon after that, he says, why level downward to our dullest perception always and praise this as common sense? The commonest sense is the sense of men asleep which they express by snoring. Yeah. I fear chiefly lest my expression may not be extravagant enough. The words which express our faith and piety are not definite. And then one of the best ones, the volatile truth of our words should continually betray the inadequacy of the residual statement. So it's a call for uh, a certain level of, uh, I don't know if obscurity is the right word, but a lack of um, emphasis on clarity. So, you know, of course it made me think of the analytic tradition in philosophy versus the continental yeah he says while england endeavors to cure potato rot will not any endeavor to cure the brain rot which prevails so much more widely and fatally i do not suppose that i have attained to obscurity but i should be proud if no more fatal faults were found with my pages on this score than was found with the walden ice southern customers objected to its blue color which is the evidence of its purity as if it were muddy, and preferred the Cambridge ice, which is white, but tastes of weeds. The purity men love is like the mists which envelop the earth, and not like the azure ether beyond. <laughs> so he thinks what he said and written about is okay. <laughs> and, and then one more. Uh, just let me do one more. In this part of the world, is considered a ground for complaint if a man's writings admit of more than one interpretation. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but see, the mass of the book, again, is concrete descriptions of physical phenomena and being kind of poetic about that. And if he's just saying, you know, many people aren't going to understand why I bothered to describe these things and why I do them in the way I did, and they're not going to necessarily be able to follow my imagery. And he's talking about the bulk of the book. 
Well, that's one way of taking it, but that's not really the bulk of what our discussion has been about because, you know, that's something, you know, just read the book if you want to get that. that <laughs> like we have I a, think that was the original title of the book, right? Concrete Descriptions of Physical Phenomena. Just, <laughs> <laughs> that was the, the subtitle, the long subtitle right. that he had to use when he submitted it as his that's right. thesis. <laughs> but I think it's very different if he really took his almost asides on virtue, you would hardly take the description of the state of man and being dissatisfied with work and wanting, you know, the whole stuff from the beginning of the book as being an aside. But I could see how, even though it's philosophically central for us, how he might see it as, well, that's just the introduction. I'm talking about the meat. So I don't think he's giving an excuse here for why his philosophy is not razor sharp. I just don't think that he was thinking in those terms. I think he's talking more about the poetry, which I don't take any issue with. So I don't see this ending as aimed at me. (laughs) There's a lot of metaphor. There's a lot of little subtle things, which aren't, unless you're reading pretty carefully, you're not going to pick up on. There's a lot of wit. And I know for, you know, my reading, it's not something I could read quickly. I had to labor over it some paragraphs took a long time and, and it was far too much reading actually for one podcast. It took me a long, long time. But you feel good that you did yeah, it. Of course. Don't you? That you actually have experience of this whole book as opposed to chapters yes. one through four or whatever. I got through it. Took me two years. <laughs> Walden was my Walden. <laughs> <laughs> what was your, this was just all like recalling a, a good old friend, Dylan. So you didn't have any difficulty. Wes said that Emerson was like, doing heroin and this was like you know spending a week in the opium den for me i <laughs> it has so many memories for me and resonates for me i fear it's probably actually a bad book for me to read and talk about because it's one that i have to work to be articulate about i really enjoyed reading it and i enjoyed talking about it but i fear that i haven't been as articulate about analyzing it as i might mainly because i love it too much well, maybe this is the kind of book that that is an appropriate reaction to. I had a very good attitude going into this, and I still, you know, I don't feel because of the way in which I took it in, and I didn't feel like I, I think if I did slog through chapters seven through 17, <laughs> actually reading them as opposed to just listening to them, then yeah, I would have found it not only laborious like Wested, but actually torturous by the time I got really far into the nature descriptions. But since I didn't do that, you know, I had a perfectly nice time with that. I just felt like for discussion purposes, what interested me most was reflecting on what kind of philosophy he's doing here. I mean, you could argue that it's not even, oh, it's not even philosophy or it's just an essay. You shouldn't put it up to such standards. But given that he's very confident that this is a really good way to get at truth, what does he think he's doing here? And do I agree? Because this would be a much, much more pleasant way to write a book than like, there's no fucking way I would try to write what Rawls or Nozick did. That would be hell. Like, unless you have a professional reason, unless you're going to get tenure out of doing that shit. No, write a book like Walden instead, where you'll get to think about cool stuff and not put any footnotes in. (laughs) So I want to reflect on given that this is one of the most famous examples of this. How do I feel about that? And I, you know, it's not quite my style, but I see a lot of value in it, certainly. You know, to get at that meaning, Mark, I mean, we concentrated on 
in large part on things that were explicitly philosophical, both in generalization and his pronouncements in the book. But I think that really closely looking at chapters and groups of chapters and explicating them to then understand what he's doing and what juxtapositions he's making and what meaning comes out of them is another way to read that book. And it's much more like reading a piece of literature or trying to understanding a piece of Mm -hmm. art and understanding that upon that examination, there are insights that are, you know, well, philosophical. And that if I think of the process of having an examined life, that's what I would put in there with it. So, just like it's a thin way to read a novel and say, well, you know, this is an embodiment of Sartrean philosophy, and then just spend all your time trying to figure out what the Sartrean 15-page essay would be that would replace the novel is, I think that there's a reason why it's a novel. And in this case, I think there are reasons that are not incidental to the way it was written and meaning that comes out of the other chapters and the sections that aren't so explicitly philosophical, but that require a different kind of reading and a different kind of discussion and a different kind of analysis that explicates those sections on their own terms and then reflects on them and pulls out that meaning that isn't going to be said straight up by saying quotes and sentences without having a lot of words in between. Yeah. But it is true, though, that he'll take some phenomena and describe it, but then he's riffing off that. He's doing thinking himself. So the phenomena will be natural, and the thing he's thinking about will often be social. So, for instance, in the sound section, he's hearing owls, and they represent the idiotic and maniacal hooting of men and the dark twilight and unsatisfied thoughts which all have. Or there's a great just tour de force section on a train going by. Yes. He compares it to a battering ram at first, and then he personifies it, and then talks about it as a kind of fate that we construct. What does he say? We have constructed a fate and a tropo that never turns aside. And he just riffs on all sorts of ideas and using what's on the train as a point of departure. So Spanish hides with tail twists as a symbol of the obstinacy of men, and he thinks about commerce as involving you know enterprise and bravery. And the way he ends it is... I think there are sheep and shepherds on the train. It's a cattle train. You know, so the, yeah. So the irony of, so he says, so is your pastoral life world past and away. So the irony of the pastoral being on the train, which is sort of destroying pastoral life. That kind of stuff I just think is fantastic. As Mark said, it'd be the kind of stuff I want to read. It's the kind of stuff I, I want to write. Well, and incidentally, in that section that Wes just pointed to, Looking at it very closely, it would explicate more his thoughts about technology, because he's not wholly negative about that train in that section. Right. It's complicated. Yeah. Ultimately, it's complicated. But I think, uh, like you, Dylan, I found it enormously pleasing, and I was pleasantly surprised since the last time I wasn't so positive about Mm. it. I didn't have a strong expectation. I read it parts of it long ago as well, and didn't even remember really what my own reactions were to it whenever I read it in high school or geez, I don't know. But I kind of came at this with the concern of just like any really influential text, there have been a lot of dumb ways that I think this book has been taken as an excuse to be a total Luddite against technology, 
as a directive for this is the way to permanently live, even though that's not the way this is given. It's given in his, as an experiment that he goes away from. So that's kind of what I was concerned when I started this with finding the subtleties that would mitigate against such, I think, harmful readings. Next time, we will finally take on, for the second time, for the first time that you will have heard, Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia from 1974. Please join us for that. We're considering putting out a 2015 partially examined life calendar in time for the upcoming holiday season. So this would be a wall mount, spiral, or folded 24-page, 12-month calendar with PEL-style images, fun quotes, significant dates, etc. In other words, a great gift for yourself or your loved ones. It should cost in the neighborhood of $20 plus shipping. Since we're going to need to order and print these in mass, we need to know in advance how many of you might be interested. So please go look at the partiallyexaminedlife.com blog for a post about this calendar, or it'll be linked from the post for this episode. If there's any possibility you'd be interested, please go take the very short survey to let us know that. So we know whether we have enough demand to justify doing this. If you're supported by donations, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com to make a contribution. There have been many big donors since last time, but I will read them next time. And also, you don't have to sign up for the uh, – just for $5 a month will get you access to our citizen site, which will get you access to all those old PEL episodes that are no longer free on iTunes and for the audio to the various not school discussion groups that have taken place over the last couple of years now. So many other topics that we don't cover in the podcast and you can participate in such groups newly. You could read Walden with other people. I know you've been looking for some structure to force you to read this entire book and that would be a good way to do it. Or you could just go on our blog or our Facebook group and post little snide comments or tweet at us. Follow us on Twitter. There is a LinkedIn group. There are many options. Tonight's episode has been brought to you by Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it easy and fast to build your own professional website, online store, or portfolio. You can get a free trial and 10% off by visiting squarespace.com and entering the code EXAMINED when you check out. A better web starts with your website. All right. Groovy. Good night, Good night. everybody. Good night.
Outside of moments, I.